Ladies and gentlemen, if you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For just $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or smugfilm.com or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Whether you want us to plug your website, your movie, your small business, your Twitter handle, whatever it is, we'll plug it. For $10 a month, you get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on every single episode of the show. That's four episodes a month. It's an incredible deal. So once again, that URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. I actually go by J.J. Abrams now. J.J. Abrams, that's what you're going by? Yeah. Okay. That's the new one. J.J. Abrams and live via Skype, Brad Avery. Hey, this is actually uh, pre-recorded and they just, they're just filling it all in. Man, people are going to be disoriented listening to this episode. Well, it's impressive. He's just guessing what we're going to say in advance. Right, Brad? No. Yes. <laughs> we haven't worked out the kinks of the technology yet. But uh, I got us all here today because we all saw Cloverfield. Look at that. We all saw a movie. It's when, so rare. When does that happen? Yeah, it's so rare that three of us see the same movie in the same week. I, I, I went and saw it on a whim with my friend. And uh, the first thing when I got home, I'm like... I feel like I got to talk to John about this. So I message you and you would just come back from it too. Shit. Yeah. I was excited. Yeah. I take it. We all enjoyed it. Yes. Quite a bit. I enjoyed it myself. Brad, did you enjoy it? Yeah. I, I surprisingly probably like a solid four out of five, but I, I really loved it. Yeah. I'm going to go three and a half out of five, but that's not anything against it. That's just like, that's my enjoyment. It was a but, 7 out of 10 enjoyment for me. I think it's a good movie. I think it's... If you if you want to see this movie... By the way, if you haven't seen it already, we're probably going to get pretty spoilery at a certain point as we discuss this thing. I kind of uh, want to start talking with the ending. Just, yeah. Yeah. It sets you up. Yeah, if All you right. haven't seen it, hang the fuck up. Yeah, just listen to an old episode. We I got tons of episodes. Some people have this thing now where they're like, oh, if a movie can't hold up to spoilers, you know... It's probably not that good a movie, but like some movies are mysteries and just like shut up and watch them. Yeah. So if you're listening and you haven't seen 10 Cloverfield Lane, go back and listen to another podcast episode. We got like 70. I'm sure there's ones you haven't listened listen to. Listen to the Waldo one. Waldo one's great. That's topical just, now. Yeah, they just uh, green little Waldo movies. So listen to what ours would be like. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are now apparently making a, a Waldo movie. But well, guess what? We already came up with it. Go back and listen to that one. And your version has Danny DeVito as a wizard. Yeah, it does. You should you should get in touch with, with Seth Rogen and, and tell him that idea so he doesn't not put it in. And He'll find us. Deal. Well, hopefully, you know, we did the legwork and they've heard the episode and it's just, you know, 
paint by numbers at this point for them. That would be the ideal situation. We don't want a cut of the money. We don't no, need that. We do. we just, yes, we do. We do? Yeah. We want a cut of the money. We want a sizable cut of the money. And I we also say. want to see it on screen happen. So Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, if you're listening, we won't... Give, give them a story by credit. That's that's all you got to do. Just story by credit. Story by and, yeah, and check money. in the mail. And, and money. Money and story by. I don't care right. about any... Just the money. You don't want story by. It's fine. Just... Money. All right, anyway, Cloverfield. Anyway, Cloverfield. eight out of so, ten Cloverfield Lane. The thing I've been seeing is like everyone I talk to, other than my friend I saw with who, who also loved it, uh, has like hated the ending or been on and on about the ending and how. Um, well, here's a spoiler: it's aliens. It was aliens the whole time, and uh, yeah. So yeah, like a bunch of aliens too, like mad load of aliens, not just whole whole War of the World style aliens. Which is what I like. I like how it has that those like tentacles that, that are very War of the Worlds. Yeah, and the whole just like the barn setting it that the ending was basically like a remake of the second act of War of the Worlds. You know, like visually it looked exactly like it, kind of felt exactly like it. Same sort of thing where they doesn't he even do the same thing in the War of the Worlds, the the Spielberg movie yeah. where he like throws the. I was gonna say that kind of threw me off while I was watching. I was like. Wait a second, she's doing the same thing that Tom Cruise did. Yeah. That was a little weird. The trouble with it is the conceptually the ending is really cool. Like the idea of it being real and the idea of just going like balls out and having it be this like huge alien chase is cool. But would have had a lot more impact if it wasn't like exactly War of the Worlds. Yeah. It's something you've seen before, literally. Like fairly recently. It was a huge movie, everybody knows. Yep. Because that part needed to really feel like something very strange and uh, and off-putting. Yeah. And it almost nearly. ended up being comforting because like, oh, I remember this scene. Yeah, it's a very familiar beat. It's not just a familiar scene at this point. It's just a familiar beat where like you see the beat and you're like, all right, well, I can sort of relax, which you should be like on the edge of your seat at that point, really. Yeah, because the first half of that scene is like unbelievable. Yeah. When she sees the ship in the distance and sees like the tentacles drop out of it and you see that thing moving through the cornfield and, and she's like struggling to get the mask back on because she knows it's real. Yeah, that's all great. That's great. Like, also, the, the right when she gets out of the bunker is maybe some of the, one of the most tense moments of the movie because there's just that, that silence. Yeah. That feeling of what's going to happen. You know it's not over, so you know something's going to happen. And I, th- I think we were talking about this after we saw it, but kind of that that fact that the open air is, is more claustrophobic than the, the bunker is at that point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a great, great moment. And you get that feeling too, also in what I thought was the most tense part of the, the entire movie. I was fucking squirming when she sees the help thing scrawled into the, the that blue was great. sky. That was wonderful. I mean, that, that I think of the entire movie, that was the per- part that I was the most tense during. Cause you, um, I didn't realize at first that it was from the inside. Until me neither. I thought it was scrawled on the outside. Yeah, me neither. I didn't realize until she said it, which might have been just sort of a uh, a directorial flaw, but it kind of made it even more intense to me because you were trying to figure it out and I was waiting for somebody to be on the other side. You know, like I was waiting for somebody to show up right yeah, outside the window. Scared. Yeah, like you're waiting for a jump scare that doesn't ever come and those scenes are always really tense. I'm going to have to throw myself in the in the camp of people who knew that it was on the inside of the thing i don't know it just looked like it to me yeah because it was facing outward the words so i assumed that it was a message for 
I thought that it was Some because other... like if you're you're running around and you're dying from this poison gas or whatever, uh, you're just right in health. You're not thinking, oh, this has to be reversed. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But no, I mean, you were right. You 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 got the intention. So victory. Yeah, I don't know how you would. Maybe the only way to sh to show it clearly on the other side is if the fingernail is still stuck in the uh, thing, or if she like smears the blood or something. Oh, she she used her her earring. Oh right. Well. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was on the floor, right? Yeah, yeah. See yeah, yeah. that? I missed. I I missed the fact that it was written with the earring. But um, I thought so it was like scratched with. Like, I I put it together in the next scene. Yeah. yeah. So there's um a review on The Verge which I thought handled the the ending problem really well, which is you know why does it switch from being this sort of somewhat realistic suspense thriller to just full on sci-fi? You know, and problem is audiences don't. You, you switch genres on them and they they don't take it well. But um, it, Tasha Robinson wrote the review and she really digs into the fact that you know this whole movie is uh, like a domestic abuse narrative and it, you know it's clearly uh, John Goodman plays that role really well of just all these these traits of an abuser, the the emotional manipulation, the uh, outbursts of violence, and then but the reason the ending works so well is that that's wasn't supposed to be her narrative. Her her narrative was never supposed to be getting kidnapped by John Goodman by Howard. She starts the movie. She's leaving her her fiance for some unknown reason, and she's just kind of fleeing. And it's just kind of emotional baggage, and she's got her own shit she has to work out and, and work through. And then it all gets co opted when she gets into the car accident or the crash, and, and takes her to the bunker, and this all happens. So what uh, what Tasha Robinson is saying is that the alien ending is the completion of that arc that began in the movie. The arc in the bunker is taken care of when she defeats Howard and gets out. But then the world is still you know facing her. The world that she had to deal with before it's changed, but she still has to kind of come to that own personal uh, conclusion. And so that's in when she has to a fight for survival against the aliens wins and then decides that she's going to go off to Houston to keep fighting with the, the human resistance rather than go to the safe spot and just kind of keep hiding from her problems. And so she kind of takes that decision on her own. So sort of the, uh, the arc is that she's put into the situation by Howard that she never wanted to be in, that she never chose for herself and has to deal with the cards she's dealt in this situation to, to overcome it. But now, once she's out in the world again, she's of her own free will. She's facing her own issues, making her own decisions, and that's why the ending works. But she's doing that in the bunker. I mean, the the getting out of the bunker is the completion of the arc at the beginning, where she wasn't taking, where like she says, she was running away from um, challenges instead of dealing with them, because she always has the option in the bunker to give up and live the sham life. And then she starts building the uh, suit and everything and, and everything happens because she makes the decision not to. So it's not, they're two, it's not like they're two separate arcs. She completes the, the arc from the first scene in the bunker. Yeah. And she becomes gangster by her experiences in the bunker. And that's why she's so fucking gangster at the end when she yeah. fights the alien. Well, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of contained within like there, there are parallel arcs, obviously, but I think, I think the arc of her leaving her fiance and all that is is then, you know, you then have this bunker arc that's in the middle that parallels that story. It, it is a story, but it parallels that that opening scene to then, you know, to completion. 
And then when she's out, she has to finally go back, wrap up that opening scene. I don't know. So, I don't really agree weird, with this. Yeah. I think this makes sense on paper more than it does in practice, um, which is the trouble with a lot of these sort of subtext based readings of things. I think it's a very linear arc. I think it's it's literally her, you know, having to fucking step up to the plate. Yeah. And she does. Yeah. And then she continues to do so outside, yeah. not in a in restarting the arc from the beginning, just in continuing the the journey she's been on since she was in the uh Yeah, thing. and it's it's palindromic in the sense that she was outdoors in the beginning and she's now outdoors at the end. But I think if you look at that too literally, then you miss the fact that it's a very linear film. You know what I mean? Like I can understand yeah. why somebody would try and read the film in a sense of, oh, the outdoor stuff sort of bookends it. So that must be its own thing. It's like when people start drawing diagrams of movies and shit, where like if oh, someone no, was I, charting it off, they would be like, oh, and this part will draw a line that goes you know, below and then curves and then comes back to the bottom bit. But then the middle bit is its own little fucking rainbow curve on the top. Like, I hate when people map shit like that. No, it's like a pretty fucking straight line, the whole movie. Yeah, and uh, I mean, she's not wrong in her assessment of what's happening in the movie, but I think it's wrong to uh, compartmentalize any of it. And then you come down to the problem, which is that, you know, an ending can work in terms of the character development and can work as the completion of an arc and not work as a uh, piece of filmmaking which is sort of the trouble that this ending has because it comes so close to being great but they don't have the the um whatever skill set you need to make that scene really exciting yeah they didn't have so you uh in terms of sort of your emotional response not your intellectual one but your emotional response you're super tense, super tense, super tense, super tense. Then she gets outside and you're super tense, super tense, super tense. And then it's like you get ahead of the movie in the last five minutes. It's like halfway through the action of it, the tension just dissipates. Yeah, and which happens a lot. It happened back. to I Am Legend, yeah. which was another movie, I think, with uh, a spectacular first two acts and then a third act that broadened the horizons a little bit and when, couldn't when the, keep up with it. When the woman shows up? Yeah, I, I think horror movies and sci-fi movies both, actually, but especially horror movies, the biggest challenge is when you decide to broaden things in the end, because the end should really be a moment where you're, everything non-essential is stripped away, and you're dealing with sort of the core of the, the story and, and the character who really matters. And this, what do you think? Well, I was going to say, this does that on paper, but in practice, the um, the visuals and the and the sense of whether or not she's going to get out of it just aren't there and they're there for the rest of it because the rest of it is so unique but um it's sort of the danger i think of the fact that it wasn't really the original end to the story and it's probably a better ending than the script ending but it's not finessed like it's almost like the last five minutes were made by a slightly less talented director i really like the ending because i feel like it reaches that kind of crescendo but also of that um that taking everything that's, that's built up to this and then giving it a proper sort of um, finale rather than just kind of closing out on... Uh, I think the original script had the ending was uh, she she drives off and then she finds the city destroyed and that turns out, oh, he was telling the truth and it just kind of ends there. Yeah, it was the ending of The Mist, the, the, the novella, not the movie, but like the original script basically had the same ending as the novella, The Mist. Where did you guys find out about this original script stuff? Because I didn't... 
hear about this. Uh, it's somewhere on this thing, the internet. Ah, okay. You heard of this? Uh, you'll have to send me a link to and, the internet. Um, yeah. Okay. And so Damien Chazelle, who did Whiplash, rewrote the script, and the, like the original guys have have credit, but he like mostly redid the entire thing. So yeah, he made it less rapey, which I think is a really good uh, good move. Smart. Yeah. Because the the original on. script they describe it, it's like super. Like everything in the in the bunker is is all um all this stuff that's sort of under the surface about how she's like this beautiful woman with these two dudes is all on top of the screenplay. Mm. Apparently, I think according to one people of the who other read things it. I want to talk about is how good uh, John Gallagher Jr. is as Emmett and how sharp that character is because you, yeah you you're saying there's like these two dudes and this one beautiful woman in a bunker, but you never, he is just, he's very who he is on the sleeve. He's well-meaning, and you never get this sort of sense that he's uh, ever going to turn on her or anything like that. And then they, they really form this really authentic friendship between two people who would never, ever become friends in a in a different situation. This kind of this redneck kick guy and this girl from the city. And you can tell when, when she first meets him, she's, uh, you know, eyeing him suspiciously. She can't trust them and then they form this really nice bond it's just very sweet which i i think i didn't expect that from the movie is for it to be that that sweet between them he's he's really good because um the other two are so established and like you're so excited to see both of their faces it's like i love john goodman and i really like mary elizabeth winston she's not in a lot of stuff so whenever i see her i'm like yeah and then this third dude i, I don't know shows up and like as soon as he showed up i was like i don't like you because i don't know who you are (laughs) your face is unfamiliar yeah and it was just this like very petty thing (laughs) but then by the end i was like yo this dude is unbelievable let's get him and everything yeah i know i had like the same thing where i i didn't also didn't realize that mary elizabeth winstead was in it until i was sitting in the theater and her name popped. really yeah i don't know i i think i saw the trailer real quick and i just forgot that it was her i just remembered that john goodman was in it but um yeah no like you, I think the audience has the same thing because of that, where you know John Goodman, you know Mary Elizabeth Win- Winstead, but you don't know this dude, so you don't trust him because you don't know who he is. Yeah, which is a smart bit of casting because it really um, it puts you off balance in the first act because you know you don't you don't have a, a read on what kind of type that guy usually plays. Um, I, I think this the first act of this was so good at keeping you off balance. I can't remember another movie in recent memory that kept you so at a loss for at the beginning, how things are going to pan out, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the casting stuff real quick. I, I went on IMDb after I saw it and was just looking at the trivia. And one of the things that was on there was, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead was the choice for the character. They didn't pick anybody else. She was the choice from the start, this, that, and the other. And like, to be honest, I, I was, Kind of disappointed to hear that because I was like, all right, but you could have looked at some other people. Like I was, I didn't think she was so amazing in it that I would read that fact and be like, yeah, totally. Really? I thought she was unfucking believable. Really? I thought she was so good. Oh, I thought she was either she not did, directed well or something was off. She did so much with ambiguity in her face. I mean, it comes down to that first act again. I mean, the the scenes where she's sitting there. And trying to figure out which of the two of them is going to be the problem. I mean, she does so much 
unbelievable, such open facial acting, but also with that mask of like knowing she's trying to hide it from the two of them. John Goodman was so good and he had a part that was so much fun that it's like hard to not notice him. Mm -hmm. But if you just sit there and like watch her face in some of those scenes with John Goodman, it's unreal, unreal acting. I thought the acting was was a little rough, especially in like the eating at the table scenes when she was trying to do like the fake flirty whatever. I was going to bring that scene up as like is like a really good moment for her. Yeah. And uh, kind of how she's re- like you were saying, how she's reading the two of them and she decides it's kind of that moment where she decides, all right, I think I can can trust this dude. And John Goodman, clearly, like he's the enemy. You can see her thinking, which is something you almost never see in movies. And you almost never see in um in horror movies and sci-fi movies especially, but like you can the camera will just sit there and you can watch her her eyes move as she's thinking. And that I think is one of the most underappreciated things an actor can do. Like the number of actors who can sit there and like you can almost read their mind in that way. Well, it's like, it's the, like on one hand, it's like the boogie nights example with, uh, the, you know, the firecracker scene where it holds on, um, Mark Wahlberg's face and you really see him just think for a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think one of really the few actors who was ever like that was, uh, Montgomery Clift. I always felt like whenever it was a close up of him or even like a medium shot of him, whenever his eyes were in frame, you could like watch him trying to figure the situation he's in out. And that, I think, is like a really unique thing for an actor. Yeah, it just didn't work for me, her performance. I, I I felt like she needed to be better at what she was doing or worse. I, and what I mean by what she was doing, I mean what the character was doing. I was a little dubious about shit that I just shouldn't have been dubious about. I, it was just a, it was a, maybe it was just a feeling that it gave me that was just the, read to me as the wrong feeling, but who knows, maybe I'll see it again and not looking for that. Maybe I'll enjoy it more. I think for as far as the the characters presented, I think she had like the perfect level of skill set where it's not like this person is perfect at everything, but she's smart enough to figure out the situation and to figure out what she needs to do to get out of it. And I think if you, if you don't have that, if you just have this character who's like, I'm, I'm, woe is me. I, I don't know what to do. Help me. It doesn't work for that story. Isn't that what the the original script was more like? She was like a little more helpless at first. I'm not sure, but I, I read that in one of the articles about it. That feels so disingenuous to me because like nobody's yeah. like that. People are when they're in a situation like that. People are creative. That's she's what, always good in, in horror movies too. When she always plays a lead, like in the thing prequel. Yeah, which was super underrated. I think another one that fell apart at the end, but up until the end, I thought was super underrated. That was like, why people uh, went after it for the CGI because people are fucking five year olds and if they hear the word CGI, they hoot like monkeys. Well, I think, I think they problem, know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? Every movie you've ever seen, there's thousands of CGI shots in the background. Suck it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, my th- my thing with that movie is uh, I don't like how the monster operates, as in like how it works psychologically rather than uh, physically. What I like about the Carpenter version is how much of a, a thinking monster it is and how it's, it's carefully playing these characters off of each other and that's what i like about the movie and this one it was in the the prequel or, or yeah the prequel it's very just attacks the moment it gets a chance like i don't remember yeah. that about the prequel but frankly i don't think the carpenter movie is as well scripted in that way as people say like i never get that vibe that people say they get from it where like you feel like the monster's like a master tactician 
I, I, I just never pick up on that from it. Because well, especially like towards the end when it turns into a big fucking tentacle trying to grab at the TNT and everything, like it's it's mad, uh, mad campy, mad Frankenstein-y. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not a particularly uh, tactical I, thing. I like how it, up until that point, it's, it's really only when it's uh, cornered and it knows it has no other way out that it takes that method. Like, I think there's a scene where McCready has just come in from the cold and they all uh, they they're all freaking out. They think it's him. And um, what's the guy Palmer? I think is the one who's actually the thing, and he's the one head splits open or whatever in the during the blood test. But he's in the background there. He's like discreetly in the background, just like egging them on and, and driving them towards McCready. And you don't the first time you see the movie, you don't realize it. You think he's just part of the group. And I think Carpenter really excelled in the misdirection leading up to it. And again, talking about it being a mystery. And I think you can tie it back to, to here with Cloverfield Lane, you know, sort of it's it's a mystery story for a, for a large part of it. You, you go into it and the movie is uh, it knows you have have uh, preconceived notions. It knows you think it knows that you think, you know, what you're getting into. And it has to deliberately play off of you. Like You immediately think, well, this guy's lying or this guy's telling the truth and there's some way to do it. And it has to find a way to keep you guessing that it could be either or. And the whole time, even after you see the lady show up at the uh, the door with uh, the burns on her face, you're still kind of like, it's still sort of deceiving you. Like, well, maybe it's all fake. I, I don't know. By that point, I felt like it was all real. Yeah. But same. I felt like the question then, because there's so many red herrings with like the satellite and everything. I was trying to figure out whether it was like local. Right. You know? Right. You, like my mind started or to go into that. over. Yeah. Or if it was local or it was over or if he caused it, which I was thinking all the way through the end because, um, you know, it's called 10 Cloverfield Lane. And at that point, I thought it was still like a direct sequel to the first one. And also, you know, there's so much shit going on with like his satellite things and the weird letter from the Japanese satellite company. I was like sitting there trying to figure out like if this was his doing and that's why he pulled people into the bunker to just set it off like Manson with the race wars. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, I like the thing, too, of the bunker having two purposes because it's kind of alluded to the fact that he abducted a kid and yeah. kept the kid in the bunker at some point. And I love the fact that in one film we've seen, we essentially saw a bunker used in two different ways. So a bunker used for an actual purpose and also a bunker used for like his evil, sick purpose like before then. Like I love the idea of this guy with this awful evil bunker who then actually has yeah. to use it for yeah. realsies this time. You know what it reminds me of? There's this short story I read when I was a kid in one of those, like, you know how Barnes and Noble had those big hardcovers that were like a thousand scary stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and they were like 18 bucks or whatever. One of them, it was all like three page short stories that were for like, I guess, early teens. And one of them was about um, the end of the world happens like Cloverfield, but it's like nukes or whatever. And it's this woman who's living in the subway tunnels and um, she hasn't seen a person in like three years or something. And she has nothing but just like the scraps of the newspaper in the subway tunnels, which are all about this serial killer who was loose in the city. And um, she lays around at night and waits for cockroaches to crawl on her face. And that's how she eats. She'll just like eat them off of her face. And she hears the wind at night and starts to wonder if it's people screaming. And then 
This is only like a page and a half, by the way. <laughs> and then in the second page, she meets this man and it's like the first dude she's seen in years. And she's like so thrilled to see another person or whatever. And then at the end of the story, she realizes that he was the serial killer from the newspapers and he killed all the other survivors. And that sound on the wind she heard really was people screaming. Mm. And that's like the end of the story. I don't know why. It's this weird little like one-off short story. I don't even know who wrote it. I mean, but like the whole movie, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Because it really had this great sense of um, like dual purpose evil. Yeah. You know, like you have something terrible on a large scale and then something terrible on like a personal scale, which I think is a really powerful combination. And it was the best thing about the movie, the, the combination of like, you know, cosmic bad and then like petty, tawdry, human evil too. Mm. You had this like rock in a hard place feeling, which it's remarkable yeah. that it sustained that for as long as it did. I'd argue it lost it towards the end, but like to make it even 50 or 60 minutes into a movie with that feeling is pretty impressive. One, one of the things too is, you know, it's, it's one of those very... Uh, screenwriter scripts where every little thing comes into play later but it does it so well in a way like when, when you see the photo and the girl's wearing the parachute shirt that she's now wearing it's, it's one of the most effective horror moments by yeah. far yeah i mean i was waiting for when the uh bottle came back which i think might have taken some of the steam out of the ending too because you know like as soon as she's in the car you remember Oh, yeah, John Goodman mentioned he couldn't get the whiskey out of the car. And then you're like, all right, so how's she going to solve this with the whiskey? And then you think, oh, yeah, Maltov cocktail. You know what I mean? Like, it, it set it up so cleanly that uh, you had it maybe like a minute before she did. Yeah. And I think right, that yeah. was the moment the ending fell apart, which is all a right, danger with these sort of everything comes together at the end things. Here's a question. Did the movie earn John Goodman just having a giant vat of sulfuric acid sitting around? Oh, totally. I bought that 100%. He sold it well when he was explaining it. I think that was what made it work. When he was explaining like what the fuck it was and what it can do, the acting was so good that it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's got it. I get it. It was one of the only things in the movie, though, where it felt like it was borrowed from something else, which used to be, I think, four or five years ago, this was a really big problem in horror and sci-fi, and it seems like it's starting to go away now, where like every movie you saw, it was just like, all right, how's this one going to rip off Alien? How's this one going to rip off the thing? How's this one going to rip off whatever? And this didn't have that feeling at all. But when he pulled the sulfuric acid out, it didn't bother me much, but I was like, oh, you guys watch Breaking Bad. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, they were definitely watching that while writing the script. Yeah, it was like the only time in the movie where I was like, oh, I know where this came from. Because <laughs> like, even while he was explaining, I was like, I'm sure at least one of the two of them has seen Breaking Bad. You don't need to go through the whole thing. That would have been a good moment, actually, if one of the characters was like, oh, like from the show. Oh, and, he, yes. and he has no like idea what it was. <laughs> like, because he's just, his character wouldn't have yeah. seen that show. <laughs> that I think, um, <laughs> oh, were, were you saying, too, how you were so happy that we got to see him melting? in the, the Yes, because, you know, it's Chekhov's barrel of acid. You really, if you're doing it, you got to <laughs> see somebody melt. Yeah. And I felt bad for him, but that was so gross melting, too. That was like the grossest melting and you only get it for like a second. Like yeah. Even, that was what made works. it super gross because you're like it's trying enough. to figure out the the dynamics of it. Yeah. How he long was like, is it going to take? Also, like, I mean, just like the layout, like he was face down, right? Mm hmm. And like those were like his legs sticking up at the other end. It was just so gross. That was good. Good melting. R.I.P. Emmett. <laughs> but you melted well. 
I really liked the uh, the explo- random explosions that were happening towards the end of the film when she's like fighting the aliens. Like you're watching like this this bunker like that we know is on fire, yeah. just like bursts of fire just exploding from random spots in the ground, which I thought was great because it kept that tension of yeah. like how bad is this going to get this explosion, which I think it might have they could have played with that a little bit more and made it more of a foe in a sense, like yeah, bursts of fire just coming up from like, you know, the fucking cornfields and shit and like her running from them and shit like that, where it's like it just... Well, it's a shame because you feel like all they needed to do was like one more pass at that ending. Yeah. And it could have been really something special. But yeah, because there's the shot, the last shot of you see of her inside the bunker, she crawls up the ladder and the camera pulls in on the sign that says high explosives. Yeah. <laughs> so then when she comes out, there's that long... That shot that lasted for like, it felt like 30 seconds of her in wide with the bunker behind her. And I was like bracing myself for like the jump scare of the thing going off. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And it was such a great like non, it was like the 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 scene with the help scrawled in the window, like where you're waiting for the jump scare that doesn't come. It was, it was such a great little beat. And yeah, they really, uh, that was one of the best things they had in that last five, 10 minutes. It's it's a shame because they could have. I'm I'm coming off. I think like I really didn't like the ending now, which is not true. I did like it. I just think it could have been a lot better. Yeah, it's it's fine to have seen it and feel like it needed improvement, and I think that's just what it needed. You know. Yeah, that's fine. It needed improvement. Even like the thing with her in the car, like it was the one time in the movie they where they like really started to treat cheat how long something took. You know, like the rest of it is so. Um, so thorough in like pacing things so that they feel like they're taking as long as they need to take. But that thing in the car, it felt like everything just slowed down so you could get your head around the whole Molotov cocktail idea, which was stupid because you get it immediately anyway. Yeah. You know, like it, it just felt like editorially it, it slipped. It's, it's like, why is it taking this long to, to eat? Yeah, take- it got, it, it got boring. The tension started to slip to, to boring because you knew how it was going to play out. It was kind of like if you're playing a video game and the boss like lets you beat it kind of like just in the pacing of like the boss fight. Like it it was like in Zelda, like a temple boss that was like an easy one where it just kind of like Brad knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, it's like, you know, it keeps firing and you're on the right and just, if you just stay in the right, it's just going to keep firing left. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it gives you that opportunity, or it's going to open its mouth. Like I played every- Doom. Doom was never like that. Yeah, Doom was well, unforgiving. Doom was Doom was on its own level. But yeah, Zelda would, would do that a lot. I'm thinking yeah. specifically like Ocarina of Time, where like it, it, the boss would just like open its mouth for yeah. I get what, for you like you periods. like figure out the pattern exactly, earlier yeah. than the game thinks you're going to figure out the pattern. And it, it was a little weird seeing that in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, you're exactly right. It was that feeling of like you, you figured out the pattern before the movie <laughs> thought you were gonna. And the movie was so, so uncommonly good at keeping you on your toes and sort of like unable to, to get it. Yeah. That when you finally got ahead of it, it was like, you were like, come on, man. You were doing so good. And there even is that like- You part- had to like wait for it to catch up. There's that part where she hears the radio thing and we know she's going to turn before she actually turns. Yeah. Even. Like even something as simple as that. It's like, we yeah. know she's turning. There's a, it's like an extended beat of like her listening to it and like. That's what it was. Thinking. Yeah. It was, it was off by 
like a couple of beats. Yeah. But that's all. But just that's all it takes, yeah, and it, it just stacks. If you yeah. miss a couple beats on one, and then you miss a couple beats on the next, and then you miss a couple beats on the next, like it really starts to stack up. And I don't know, you know, people watching it if they don't have experience actually editing something, I don't know if they would specifically know intuitively that that's what was wrong. Yeah. But that's really what it is. It's like it's when you cut from hearing it on the radio to the turn to whatever, yeah. or when you cut from the Molotov going into the mouth, that really changes uh, the feel of the entire sequence. Yeah. And I'll bet, yeah, like a lot of people don't really know movies. They wouldn't be able to point it out, but they would probably say that like that was the moment where they were aware of being in a movie theater. It's like these microseconds, like if you get bored for like a quarter of a second mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, it's so hard to get back in. Well, it's like when you're you're asleep and you wake up for a split second, but you wake up for too long. And yeah. then now it's like, oh, shit, how do I get back into that dream that I was just having? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it, it's it's the feeling of you're like out of the dream. Yeah. And, that's... and you can still sort of play it out how it would end in your head. <laughs> but like, you're not like, it's not a sensory experience. Yeah, anymore. That's, that's the end of the movie. It breaks the dream and you're trying to get back into the dream and you can't. It's like with, I mean, that same thing happened with Django Unchained, just with a, on a larger scale, because yeah. it has that great climax, and then it has another one later, but it's not really it. Like It's, it's funny you bring that up, because I was just thinking about that as the example when Tarantino shows up in the movie. That's yeah. That was it for me. Like, I yep. was 100% into that movie, and then he just shows up out of nowhere, and I'm just, I could not get back into it for the last, like, what is it? It's like another 40 minutes. Yeah, and on paper, it should be the best part of the movie. Because when you look at the the shots in isolation, they're beautiful shots and, you know, it's all technically really well done. But um, I think if you just, I don't know if if it's a script issue or not, but if he had cast literally anybody else in that role. No, it wasn't a script issue. I'll tell you exactly what it was. That was the first movie he ever made that Sally Menke didn't edit. Yeah. And um, it's, I mean, it's the same, same thing that I'm talking about with this. Like, it's just, you get a little ahead of it. And like, you know what it's going to do like a little bit before and you know how it's going to play out. And you have this like voice in the back of your head that's like, oh, God, am I going to sit through this again? You know, another scene like this. The problem comes down to these moments that last maybe like an eighth of a second, a half a second, at most two seconds. But they they get all in it and they're like, you know, like burrs in a in a piece of fabric. Like it's just you lose the the texture. And I think it's it's. We're talking about a movie, though, where this happens in the very ending, which is if it's going to happen, that's when it better happen that it, that you be in like, oh, I'm in the theater just when it's time to get up and walk out rather than if that happened halfway through the movie and completely derailed everything it had been building up to at that point, you know, it would completely tank the film. Whereas in this, it's just kind of, you know, saying, well, there was that one moment right at the end where it just sort of like broke me out of the spell that it had had me in. And um, not that it was intentional in the way you're talking about, but if you're going to time that thing, then, you know, that's when to do it is to, to be like, all right, uh, time to get up and, and go home. Yeah, but it uh, it keeps it from greatness. The way the same problem kept signs from greatness. You know, signs had almost the exact same problem. I, I got they get of out of the, the, the basement and then they're outside with the aliens. And in like the last two minutes, you're like, all right, let's let's move along here, you know, or. uh I am legend. It keeps I am legend from greatness. I am legend. It was the worst in because it was like 30 minutes and it was such a sharp difference between what came before and what came after. Mm. I like when it happens at the beginning 
yeah, because then you could get back in. Yeah, because if if like the first like ten minutes or so, you're like very aware that you're watching a movie, but then something snaps in place and like you get really into it. Like that's that if it's gonna happen, it should happen in the beginning. I think. And I uh, I finally watched Casablanca last night. Thank you for your Blu-ray. Oh shit! Yeah, and. That kind of happened for me with Casablanca, where like yeah, the, the opening is kind of strange. Yeah, the yeah, opening's the, a little yeah. weird. The map. Yeah, the map and the yep. narrator. I'm very like, aware. I'm watching a movie, but then some halfway into like the Rick's bar yeah. scene, I got really locked into the characters and the story, and then straight through until the end of the film, I was I was locked into place. But that opening, it it it's yeah, it's, very it's a movie. funny thing. It's yeah, it's <laughs> like it's That's exactly such how it works. yeah. yeah. And some yeah. movies you can get away with it in like the middle, you know, like if you have a really good end coming, like um, Terminator 1, I think in the middle, like there's a moment where you're like, all right. It almost has to. I yeah. Think it, it's really tough to get across the story elements that need to get across. Yeah. In that I mean, film. It sort of happens, you know, you know, speaking of Casablanca, but like Citizen Kane too, uh, all those breaks in the movie where you, you get into the story and then it cuts away. And it's like, oh, right. This was somebody telling the story to me. Like, uh, Yeah, like that's old. true. Yeah, I didn't mm. think of that. But yeah, like when it goes to uh, Leland in the wheelchair and everything. Yeah. and Yeah. Yeah. And then you're kind of like, I think for a modern audience, uh, it's a little more like uh, it's just cotton old makeup, which you never really, you never feel that for, for Orson Welles. But for that scene, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, it's just. Joseph that's Cotton. a big joke with the movie. Orson Welles made sure he had the better old age makeup. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I think one thing about Cloverfield, though. Cloverfield Lane is uh, I really like how this is like a, a studio production. The one of the things I like about the ending is that I feel like you're not seeing these types of really just tense, really good suspense stories being told anymore that just focus on the characters, yeah. on the situation the characters are in. And then it gives you that, that Hollywood modern blockbuster sci-fi got to fight the giant alien ending, but it doesn't, it doesn't drag it out. It's not this 30 minute battle scene it's it's this climax to the film that uh, I think part of it to me is why I like the ending so much is that it gave me what those those other big blockbusters try and give me, but it it meant something to the the, the story that had been told beforehand. It felt like it was really like a true proper emotional climax to the film rather than some sort of uh, payoff I I spent my ticket price on. It felt like it was it was true to the story. It stayed. The length it was supposed to stay, maybe you guys saying a little longer, but I, I had no problems with that. And uh, but the, the story beforehand is just it's focused on the characters and it's focused on this this tension that's building and the the, the fear and the, the walls closing in scenario. See, I, I I felt like it was just a little a little off, and it's kind of interesting because like intellectually, when I was seeing those last few shots, like the um, the spaceships in the in the thunder and everything, I was like, this is really kind of impressive but it was only an intellectual feeling it was like even at that point i was thinking about the movie in the past tense mm. you know I, I was thinking about it as like the credits might have well might as well have been rolling yeah it for you. i was like oh yeah that this is a, a nice way to end this movie as opposed <laughs> to just watching the end of the movie whereas like a movie that i don't think was as good but was pretty fucking good and very similar uh monsters dark continent yeah we should talk about that oh, because that. that essentially is doing what they want to do with the Cloverfield series now where, you know, each one kind of touches on the same themes and, and yeah. mythology, but does its own thing. And we, we fucking, 
defended that movie pretty damn hard on this show. I still stand by everything I said about yeah. it. But the ending of that movie was spectacular. Oh, and it so was much better than this. Very similar structurally to this. Like, even the last shot could have been the same last shot. Mm. But in that one, you have this moment where you're like, way not into it, like dead in the middle of that movie. Yeah. Like Monsters Dark Continent, somewhere in the halfway point, I was like, all right, it's coffee time. Um, so maybe this idea that the end is the best place to put that thing, that that slump, starting to think it might be the worst. Of course, I think there's no planning it out. It's not like, it's almost like the luck of the draw, yeah. you know, where it happens <laughs> you just to hope you. You get, you get the one where it's at the beginning. The idea is to not happen at all. But it probably, I, it, it's probably in every movie, at least for a microsecond, this, this, rise to consciousness but you know like well it's in most beginnings because you know the opening yeah. credits are rolling you know that that tends to be a a time where like you're you're most aware like maybe you're listening to a song over like footage of new york you yeah know, like that sort of thing it's like you're very yep watching a movie get started mm-hmm. yeah it. this is gonna be good a movie yeah, yeah, yeah. i like movies yeah <laughs> it's it's everyone still shuffling in getting their popcorn right uh, it's the overture right. almost yep that, that's sort of what what's sort of replaced the overture is we'll put like a Jay-Z song in over the credits. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, I love this song. And they're they're kind of well, everyone's still kind of making their way into the theater and sitting down and the, the stragglers are climbing over you. What are you they're thinking like, of when you're thinking of that? Because I, I would argue that movies begin much faster and punchier than than they ever used to. Like the even the beginning of this one was like, what, like three minutes until yeah. she's down in that bunker. Oh, yeah. I thought it began very well. I was in yeah. it right from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, it was a beautiful oh, no, beginning. Uh, so, <laughs> much of, so much of the beginning is, I think, to the credit of uh, Bear McCreary, who is one of the great composers in all of the art who's totally underutilized. Oh, the score was fantastic. He's the guy who composed Battlestar Galactica, which pound for pound probably has the best, most emotionally riveting music I've ever heard in anything. And like anybody who ever watched Battlestar, they always come out talking about the music because it was just so like emotionally on point. And like nobody ever uses him right. I think he does does or did Walking Dead, which is like that might as well not have music. Yeah. And like some video games, like a bunch of bullshit. And I was so excited that, you know, somebody finally gave Bear McCreary another really good job. Well, I had just seen uh, Room recently, which is, you know, similar right idea of you know a bunker whatever i'm not going to give too much away about about room for those who haven't seen it but the music in room is fucking horrible it's it's maybe the worst score i've heard in 10 years have you seen easily. uh beast of no nation though not yet dude that music is unreal it's so bad really everything about that movie is great except the mute the score is like I mean, it, it's like a corporate commercial score, you know? That Well, that was the feeling I got from Room. It was very commercially. It was very like Paxel. Yeah. It, it was fucking awful to get through. And uh, the Room, it, the, the, the movie itself, it's not a bad movie. I wasn't crazy about it. It's got stuff I like. It's got stuff I don't like. You know, for those keeping score at home, I liked 10 Cloverfield Lane way better. But... The fucking music, man. And it's a similar subject matter. And it's like, hmm. you're looking at two movies, very similar subject matter. One's got great fucking music and one's got the worst music. I think what Room does really uh, interesting, though, is taking that sort of trapped by a uh, maniac uh, scenario. But the, the sense of space that he creates in the room and the, the way you're never really sure how big this room really is until uh, until the end. It's one of those things where, well, obviously he's got to do that, but I think he just he 
perfects it so well in the you know like he'll have those shots where he's, you're looking up at the skylight and uh you're it kind of feels like it's going on forever like this the ceiling is is miles high when yeah actuality it's, it's probably got like maybe like a half a half a foot above your head that's all fine i i, I like those elements a no, lot no in i the understand film. the music's bad like, yeah I, I agree and like the, the the stuff with the kid doing his uh little voiceover narration is hit and miss but yeah i th i think lose the voiceover and a new score and it probably would have been one of my favorite films of the year i think that really got in the way of it although you did i think you were saying on one of the past episodes with room where like when you have a kid that young you're real the director's sort of more tricking them mm -hmm. than I don't I don't see that with room. I think that's an exception because that kid has to carry the film so much. No, it, every a, every child performance is a director performance. I think it. Yeah, I think it comes down to it's just a logistical thing. Yeah. I mean, some kids are more visually captivating uh, and some kids have more sort of faces that you can read emotionally more. And some might be smarter about, um, you know, what people want from them and how to display it. But I really think and I will go to the grave saying this. It, a really good child performance is a director. I think the problem is that when me and you say this, people have this knee-jerk uh, reaction like we're denying the child actor something. Yeah, which isn't true, but it's, I mean... Yeah, we're, we're, we're saying specifically that the, the mechanics of direction with a kid is very different from an adult. It's yeah. just a different process. It's nothing against a kid. You yeah, you can't leave a kid with a script... Yeah. You know, and like, no, all right, the kid's going to pull, you know, this experience to guide this scene. And, you know, the kid's going to use this technique to get this or whatever. Or, you know, any of the shit that you do with adults, you can't, you know, a, a kid, you have to have them emotionally there. And you have to more than even with adults. I mean, with adults, you have to do the same thing. But uh, there's no with adults, there's sort of like a middle ground. Like you, they'll be fine if they're left alone. But like a good example is... um in um the fall which i think is people love it visually but i think as as a piece of storytelling it's underrated uh and as a piece of acting it's underrated there's a great child performance in in the fall and uh the the way they do it is they're shooting it's it's a a man telling a story to this little girl in a hospital bed uh he's in the hospital bed not her and um she's like really emotionally invested in the story so the way they they do it is they uh put a big uh, white screen around the bed so she can't really see the crew and they improvise most of it. Mm. So it's really somebody intimately telling a story to a kid. And that doesn't sound like much for a director to do, but that's incredibly important. Yeah. With every child performance in every movie, that level of, of um, creating an environment where the kid doesn't have to fake it is really important. And also the staging of where you place a kid, like when we're talking about signs, that jogged signs in my memory. And, and I'm thinking about like one of my favorite pieces of quote unquote child acting is, you know, after the stuff with the, uh, the dog where they have to stab the dog. Right. You see the young girl sitting on the top of like a jungle gym and she's so small on the top of the jungle gym. And that's... You, it gets across so yeah. much and it's just a staging thing. It's like where you placed her and where you put her so small, like on the top of the structure. And it's just a visual thing where like your mind like fucking crosses all the T's, dots all the I's. Yeah, it it's creates like, the performance. It's a perfect her. performance, but it's just, all right, let's place this really, really small kid 
make her look as small as possible and stick her up there. Like, it's just a perfect placement. Let the Right One In had a lot of stuff like that. Yes. There's a lot of uh, visual things that made the the young girl seem very sinister in it. And uh, she had a wonderful performance in that movie, but I, I think a lot of the credit for how intimidating she came across in that movie is it's the director and it's the cinematographer and it's just where she is and how she's moving. So that's child acting. That's child acting 101. <laughs> if we can get back to the old Cloverfield, though, I'm thinking about it now. All of the movies that I can think of that are like this movie have the same problem. Signs falls apart in the same spot. And even the first Cloverfield, which I love, I think the first Cloverfield was better than this. The first Cloverfield, I think, is one of the one of the maybe 10 or 20 best of the decade period. Um, But even that one in the end, when they're in the helicopter and everything, like it's a movie at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and when the monster comes and you finally see his face and he eats HUD, it's very like theoretical. You know what I mean? Like you can see like that it's an idea they had. And I think it's because it's so, um, so much somebody giving you the ending that they know you want. And I don't know how you get out of that because if they give you the ending that you don't want, you just got a bad ending. Yeah. But you know, like you, you hit this moment where things start to rush to the conclusion and you get there a little faster and it's tough. I don't know how you get around that. I think it's just a really hard thing to edit. It's like, it needs to be there on a script level. But it needs to be finessed in editing, maybe more so than the rest of the thing. I think any one of these films we're talking about, we just need time with in the editing bay or something. Like it just needs the time. It's all a timing thing. It's like with a, you know, if you're listening to an album and the last song is really great, if you're listening to like Random Access Memories, a Daft Punk thing, and it's like that huge crescendo with that song Contact and it just finishes out so perfect. That's the same thing. It's like we all we all have all heard a million albums where like the album's great, but then like the last couple songs, it's like, all right, I'll I'll just start over the album. Yeah. I don't need to hear those. Yeah, skip. Yeah. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more episodes. See you soon. And now, Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives in an effort to alleviate the effects of the anyone anyone great depression passed the anyone anyone the tariff bill the poly smooth tariff act which anyone raised or lowered raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government did it work anyone anyone know the effects It did not work and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? Glass? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says, that at this point, on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this, in 1980? Anyone? Something D. O. O. Economics. Vu. Do. Economics. This has been a robot reenactment. Now, back to the show. Hello, I am the hunky smug film sponsor Plug Man. 
I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the Smug Film Podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter, he's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby, Slow, on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons, Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here as Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. Hello. I am the new Smug Film voicemail plug lady. I'm sexier, better, and lovelier in every way. Anyway, please leave a question or a comment for the Smug Film Podcast at 718-395-9711, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening to my beautiful voice. And now, back to the show. And we are back. We're going to talk a little bit more about Cloverfield. You know, a little couple loose ends, things we want to address, and then we're going to play a voicemail. But uh, you ha- you had a thought, John, while we had our break. I had a thought. About J.J. Abrams? Oh, yeah, J.J. Abrams. J.J. <laughs> Abrams. Yeah, it's super weird, I think, that like the Cloverfield movies are going down in history as J.J. Abrams movies, because they're not J.J. Abrams movies. No. He didn't direct or write either of them. And I feel like not a lot of people actually realize that he did not, and I want to stress this, did not direct or write either Cloverfield. And he's not fucking David O. Selznick, you know, where he's got his his hand in uh, every facet of the production and he's ghost making the entire thing. These these are movies other people made. I just sat and watched a fucking Jimmy Kimmel thing last night where he had J.J. Abrams on and you would have sworn that he wrote and directed Cloverfield. Like the, the conversation they were having. Yeah, and like I get why people think it because this one really felt like the first two seasons of Lost. You know, like it was basically the Hatch, right? Um, and the others and everything. Uh, and and you know, like there's a lot of the his sort of vibe in there. Uh, and the monster in the first Cloverfield basically shows up in Super Eight, which is a movie he did direct. Which also, by the way, could be Cloverfield Two, right? If we want to call this an anthology, we're getting series. a little Ramboy here. Yeah, <laughs> but um. But yeah, I think it's a disservice to like Drew Goddard and uh, Matt Reeves and um, this dude, Daniel Trachtenberg. Mm-hmm. I guess I was looking him up. The only thing he's really done before this was he did that short little portal fan film that was floating around a few years ago. And uh, it's kind of an interesting parallel because if you, you watch it, it's about a girl who wakes up in a, a bunker and has no idea where she uh, is or what she's supposed to do. By the way, this is what should happen with people who make one small movie that everybody likes. They should then go on to direct a $15 million movie and not like fucking Jurassic World or uh, Fantastic Four. Like this is a good spot for a man like that. $15 Mm -hmm. million movie with one location. Yep. See what you got. 
It's also like what you know, like what's his name, Colin Trevorrow. Who you know, safety not guaranteed is a pretty dumb movie, and I have no idea why they they looked at this guy and said, "Oh, you made a, a pretty shitty little romantic comedy. Like, let's give you a, a giant three hundred million dollar blockbuster." Meanwhile, yeah. like the romantic comedy stuff in Jurassic World was like arguably the most grating of everything in the that film. That was real bad. <laughs> but I think it's a disservice to um, Matt Reeves who directed the first Cloverfield, who's a really good director. Yeah. Um, he doesn't get enough credit for it. I mean, he directed uh, A Homicide. He directed A Miracles, which I think are visually the two best shows of their era. I'm always going on about fucking Homicide and Miracles. You love Miracles. Yeah. Let Me In was fantastic. And uh, I really didn't like his Planet of the Apes movie, but visually that was, you know, that was his. And that really was uh, really well achieved for what he was going after. It, uh, it keeps happening to uh, Drew Goddard, too. Who yeah. Because he wrote and directed uh, Cabin in the Woods, and all anyone yeah. talked about was Joss Whedon. Which also, I mean, Cabin in the Woods also fucking blows. Oh, it's but, fantastic. Like, that's his to ruin. You know, that was all him. Yeah, and it's kind of unfair. Whedon's yeah. another one of those ones where it's like glibly similar to Whedon's stuff, so they just give it to him. But it wasn't. That was, you know, that was Drew Goddard. So in essence, J.J. Abrams, J.J. Abrams, J.J. Abrams, J.J. Abrams. We got issue with uh, all these movies you're claiming. Yeah, because he's a really good director, J.J. Abrams. Lost, I mean, he's, Lost he's capable isn't of some even great really stuff. his. Lost isn't even really his. Like he produced, the, he was involved in like the first two seasons. Lost started out as his, and then I think Lindelof ruined it. Well, it became uh, Carlton Cuse and Lindelof's yeah. baby, baby at a certain point. Yeah, but I mean, early Lost was his. Yeah, you know, like the Lost pilot, which is probably still the best episode. That's that's Abrams at his best, I think. I understand why they do it, because Abrams is now a brand name. So they, you know, it's like when, uh, what was it, Coraline came out? And it's, uh, uh, what's his name? But it's from the dude who directed Nightmare Before Christmas. Selleck. Yeah. Yeah, Selleck. And they, uh, Tom Selleck. They, they <laughs> deliberately played it off like it was a Tim Burton production when he had nothing to do with the movie, because Tim Burton's a brand name. And Henry Selleck, this stop-motion mastermind. Well, Selleck directed oh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and everybody yeah. thinks that that is a Tim Burton fucking movie. Exactly. Well, it's funny the ones... It's funny the ones it happens with and then doesn't happen with. Because, like, nobody calls the Transformers movies Spielberg movies, or the Men in Black movies Spielberg right. movies. Or even Super 8, which I think Spielberg was one of the producers on. But Spielberg had his uh, his name on a ton of stuff like in the 80s and the early 90s that like, like there, there are probably people that think he directed Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. Well, he he did direct Poltergeist. <laughs> I mean, the difference is he did. <laughs> Hooper was coked out of his brain and Spielberg directed that movie. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. That's that's another one where that sort of just moves moves to the bigger name. Yeah. It's weird. It's sort of frustrating because it leaves a lot of people out. Well, people probably think he directed first Gremlins. Like Joe, yeah. Joe Dante is a name for people that are into film. Yeah. He's not a name outside of that. Yeah, and the Gremlins Gremlins movies are so Joe Dante. You know, like yeah. that's that's the essence of what he does as a filmmaker more than it is Spielberg's. And then, like, I don't want to say that they got nothing in it because you know there's a little bit of Spielberg's hand in that, and you can feel, and you can feel like there's like a lot of. Abrams guidance in the Cloverfield movies, particularly this one, which felt more Abramsy than the first one. Mm -hmm. But in general, you know, like just talk to the director yeah, and the writer. And then if it turns out they didn't really write and direct it, then, you know, move on up. But chances are they fucking did. Yeah. <laughs> they fucking did direct and write it. And it's not a Tobey Hooper 
situation. Yeah, or the the thing from Another World from 1951, where um, even the director, Christian Nyby, says Howard Hawks really directed it. And he had the greatest rationale I've ever heard. He said, um, if you're standing next to Michelangelo, you let him hold the brush. <laughs> I, I remember uh, I was reading something where someone was talking about this dude who uh, had worked with George Lucas on a ton of things was doing a speech and uh, doing a Q&A. And someone asked him, like, oh, so why did George Lucas stop directing after Star Wars? And he kind of dropped like, oh, he directed tons of things. Uh, uh, forget that I said that. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely directed a bunch of young Indiana Jones, they say. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of like interesting. Like, nobody knows which ones are his, but everybody has suspicions. <laughs> well, that was another thing, is he took over directing Red Tails, that, that one um, about the... the right. Which I love. I really? Love I never Tales. saw it. I love it for what it is. It's, it's very much like, uh, and I think I've said this before on the show, but uh, it bears repeating. It's very much like, uh, remember when you were a kid... And you thought you were like the smartest person in the world because you used to go to the library and you'd get out like 50 books and you'd read all of them in like an afternoon. But the reason why you were reading all of them was because they were all like 50 pages and the font was real big. It uh, felt kind of with you. <laughs> okay. The movie Red Tails feels like one of those big font books that you read in an afternoon that like really simplifies like history stuff and tries to make it more exciting than it is. And tries. This was to, a weird way to get to. It feels like a history book for children. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just one of There's those. A lot of books like that. Yeah, it's a, it's one of those like uh, yeah, tiny paperback things. Well, anyway, it, it's super glossy too. I mean, it like even the poster was oh, yeah. designed to evoke that, and like old comic books. I almost said cartoon books. Yeah, it's very much supposed to feel that way. And all the hate for the movie was like, oh, this is cheesy. This is like lame. They're like, oh, the fucking delivery and all that. And it was all very clearly by design. And if you don't enjoy it, that's one thing. But to call it like, oof, like, man, how did so much go wrong? Yeah, how did they miss the mark (laughs) so much? It's like, no, they're just trying to make it like those kind of things. And I felt like it succeeded more than it failed. I I like that movie. I'd check it out. Yeah, I see think some red tails. I think you'd uh, you'd dig some aspects. Any uh, any more final thoughts on Cloverfield before we uh, do a voicemail? Well, Brad had a polemic. What do you got, Brad? Um, yeah, just um, there was that thing the other day about uh, John Goodman was on. I think like Howard Stern, and he was talking about being feeling lonely a lot, and like he was at a Hollywood party, and he tried to talk to Kristen Wiig, and she kind of blew him off, and working with George Clooney, and George Clooney wouldn't really like hang out with him, and he was just feeling lonely. And so I think we were talking about we want to John Goodman is so, so great. I feel like we didn't praise him enough in this episode, but he's so good in this this movie. Oh, he's tremendous. We, and we not just this movie. He, he's one of those people like like Edward James almost is the best part of every movie he's ever been in. He's he's he honestly is like a master of his craft. Like, I, I don't think you can say any less of him. So we were talking about we want to each say if we were to meet John Goodman and hang out with him, where where would you want to take John Goodman to make him feel appreciated and let him know how great he is? So like a fun little John Goodman day with yeah, John you're, Goodman. You're hanging out with John Goodman and he, he, he comes to your town and he's like, hey, you know, like, what, what's there to do? Like, what can we do? And you, you got to get to know him, too. So but you want you want him to feel appreciated. So where do you take him? I'd like to go to the Natural History Museum with John Goodman and to the Hayden Planetarium. Mm. I'd like to sit in the planetarium with John Goodman. Look at some stars or like Liberty Science Center. Ooh, Liberty Science Center is good because like he's not going to encounter too many people like they're not like a hands on kids science. Museum. Yeah, he wouldn't get mobbed. A lot of the kids wouldn't really know who he was. 
maybe if they heard his voice, they'd be like, I think Sully's in there or whatever. If that's the name of the fucking monster in Monsters, Inc. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Did I get yep. that right? Yes. Points for me. But uh, Liberty Science Center and then Liberty Island with him. By the way, I fucking love Liberty Science Center. <laughs> it's great. That was like my favorite place as a kid. It's it's a place still like not a lot of people know about it. It's a it's a great little place. You know what it is? It's one of those. I think every neighborhood in the world has one. It's a field trip location. Yeah. Like you really know it if you did a field trip. It's like if, if people were visiting New York City, I wouldn't even think to say, oh, you should go to Liberty Science Center. But if I really sat and thought about it and really like picked something out for them to do, I'd be like, fucking get on a bus and go out to Liberty Science Center. Yeah. So I'd like to go to Liberty Science Center with John Goodman and close the day out on Liberty Island looking at old Lady Liberty and all the American majesty that John Goodman's been a part of. Nice. How about I you, would- Brad? I, there's a uh, there's a diner in my my town called Lloyd's Diner and it's it's only open Saturdays and Sundays from like six a.m. to noon. It's a breakfast place, Ooh. friendly breakfast place. But it's like a nice little like trolley car diner, like just Ooh. like a real classic style. And they give you this, these huge plates for for like five dollars. You get like a, a massive, just nice full like American breakfast of you know you, you get your your choice of French toast, uh, eggs bacon, sausage, like everything, and the hash browns. It's delicious. I want to take them there, have a nice a nice weekend breakfast, and then I'll take them down to this uh, this rare books shop that's uh, in, a, in a neighboring town that I really like called Barely Barely Read Books, and it, they got like uh, first editions of Hemingway. And Barely Legal Books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd, uh, you know, we'd just hang around and, you know, just shop for books and just have you know, a nice breakfast and uh you know go book shopping john that's goodman. a nice day with john goodman i would like can i be a part can i like sign up for that day yeah it's an adorable day what about you cody i would take john goodman to edgewater new jersey and i would go to mitsua with john goodman which is Ooh. the japanese Ooh. strip mall i'm going there with john goodman really very few people are going to recognize him there He'll be That's able good. to just... It's very interesting that we both chose to take John Goodman to New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good spot for him, I think. Yeah. We'll walk along... A little the... more salt to the earth. Yeah. We'll walk along the water. It's a great view of uh, New York City from Edgewater, that kind of river walk. And he would he would dig Mitsua. It's a little Japanese strip mall. There's a little grocery store. There's a food court. There's a little Japanese bookstore. And, you know, walking around with John Goodman, like people would probably remark about his height, you know, like you'd get, he would get those kind of looks, but he wouldn't really get the like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah, you, you take him into, into New York and, you know, you just got people yelling Big Lebowski lines at him all day. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? You could, uh, while you're in Edgewater, you could swing down to Weehawken and you could go look at the site where Alexander Hamilton was killed. Sure. Right on the water there, really beautiful uh, cliff on the, on the Palisades. Which, by the way, are the cliffs that the term cliffhanger was invented for. Ah. Because that's a good the uh, trivia. That's a, that's a conversation starter. If, yeah. Uh, things get quiet and you're not really sure what to say to John Goodman. Yeah, because early film was all shot in Fort Lee uh, and the, the perils of Pauline, the cliffs were the Palisades cliffs. You could just go right down to Weehawken from Edgewater, look at the, the Hamilton site, really, really pretty parks there. Yeah. It's a John nice Goodman, if, if you're listening to this, just know that. It's on us, you know, just send us a, a voicemail and, you know, we'd love to hang out with you and, you know, just let you know and show our appreciation and just, you know, 
be friends. And everybody yeah. else, call in and tell us where would you take John Goodman? Yeah, I really want to hear. And and make sure they're like good, like ours. Yeah, don't <laughs> bullshit this. We want a real slice of life. You know, don't, what's what's the best you have to offer? Don't put in fucking references to his movies. Don't call up yeah. and quote Big Lebowski. You quote Big Lebowski, we'll never run anything you, you say on the show. That's, that's right. You'll that's be blacklisted. Right. Really, just give us some thoughtful John Goodman escapades. Yeah. Hmm. All right, we uh we could go on about this all day, but we have a voicemail, right? Yes, we do. Let's see what that one is. Hi, Smog Film. This is Nick from Kansas City calling once again because I have a question for you guys. It's been going around recently, or not so recently. Kind of always been a widely accepted uh, fact among people that I run around that the book is always better than the movie. And in fact, the guy who does all the political number crunching and politics and stuff. Um, recently shared an article on Facebook about books that were, you know, way better than the movies. And I want to hear Smug Film's opinion on movies that are definitely better than the books, be they because they just, uh, you know, ramp it up a little bit, like, say, uh, Amityville Horror, or they remove embarrassing subplots like The Godfather, or they just turn the book's wacko ideology on its head, like Starship Troopers. I want to hear Smug Film's uh, thoughts on this. And especially John's thought on Jaws, the book. I want to see if he dislikes it as much as I do. Uh, thank you very much, Smug Film. The whole uh, the book is better than the movie thing is, I just want to get this on the public record, the stupidest fucking thing you can <laughs> say about either books or movies. I mean, that's like the, the, the culture version of talking about the weather. That's like a non-statement. Don't say it. Nobody cares. It's fucking stupid, and it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Just want to get that locked in off the bat before we go any further. Yeah. Do you both I, agree? I agree. I, I completely agree because I think when you are adapting something, you are then telling the story and you are effectively telling a whole new version of that story. You don't uh, get fussy about, uh, oh, you're putting on that play. It's, that play's already been produced. It's a retelling of a story and you can tell a story as many times as it needs to be told through different perspectives. I, I mean, it all depends, and you know, because it's so subjective. The example immediately pops in my mind is that in Robert Bloch's Psycho, the original novel, Norman Bates is this like fat middle-aged man, and to me, just why would you? You can't prefer that. Like I don't know, maybe you do, but to me, it's like Hitchcock takes this story and he tells it the way he wants to tell it in the way that he thinks works, and it's not really fair to compare the two. It's not even that it's not, it's just, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't amount to anything. I mean, you can compare the two. You can, you can look at, um, you know, the, the, the different routes to get to the characters and everything, but to draw any wider judgment about what medium is better than another medium is it's, it's meaningless shit. Block was a great writer and, and Psycho is a really good book, but you know, what that story needed was Bernard Herrmann and, um, that beautiful high contrast black and white and everything that Perkins gave it. You know, yeah, or Shane, which is a, a wonderful book by Jack Schaefer, who's a very underrated author, and I would say Shane is worth reading by everyone, and so is his other book, The Canyon. But Shane, the movie, is way better than the book. Shane, the movie, is just unbelievably good, and The Searchers, way better than the book, and uh, The Godfather. Obviously, the embarrassing subplot he's talking about is that Sonny's girlfriend has a giant vagina, which is uh, yeah. Doesn't Sonny have like a huge dick, and like uh, that's why they settle together or something? Yeah, it's something real bad like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not good. And The Exorcist was uh, was waiting for, for sharpening. Uh, and Clockwork Orange was waiting for 
what uh, clockwork. A lot of stories I think are, are better told as sensory experiences hmm. rather than a sort of internalized experience. I, clockwork. I took a sorry, class, go ahead. Uh, I took a class in college on you know film and literature and like adaptation. So we would read the book and then we'd watch the movie and kind of we'd discuss you know. What's the process of adaptation like? What are the benefits of each medium? What do you get out of this version that you don't get out of this, the other version? So, like one one we read was uh, uh what's his name Roddy Doyle uh, the Commitments and uh, it's about a band and so you know they they play funk and the thing you get from the movie that you don't get from the book is you can listen to the music. Yeah, mm. that's a big thing, and it's a big thing with um anything that's hinging on tension or anything like that too. I mean, you, you really get a lot of more mileage like Jurassic park is actually a pretty good book. As far as books like that go, it's uh it's not particularly masterfully written because I think even Crichton would say he wasn't a great wordsmith, but the, the, the mechanics of the storytelling are really pretty good in it. And the, the characters are pretty fun, but that is a story that really depends on the, the sensory experience of seeing a, a dinosaur and not believing your eyes. Yeah. Which was the experience of watching that movie. I think one thing that, um, you know, one thing that literature obviously does better is you can get more into somebody's head and get precisely into what they're thinking. Whereas film, it's harder to do that without narration and it feels a little forced. But one thing that, um, that film can do is that I feel like a lot of the great movies that are adaptations, usually you find it's because they removed something or they cut something that was, you know, had more room to be, talked about in a, in a book which has less constraints on you know on how you, you got to be extremely economical when you're making a, a hollywood movie or whatever and i feel like in in a book you know you still want to be concise and, and to the point and not not distract people but there's more leeway to get into ideas or to get into subplots that just don't work on a on film yeah for so, that reason i think uh i think all stephen king adaptations are are better than the book even like like the crappy books of his or like the lesser stories and even like the crappy adaptations like i like crappy stephen king adaptations hmm. like i like the shitty tv movie ones like i they're i love uh fucking thinner thinner is fucking awesome they're these like thinner is good thinner is really underrated yeah that was a bad example because that's actually like a legitimately good uh overlooked gem but uh, like fucking Langoliers and like these fucking junky adaptations, Stephen King adaptations, like they're the ones you can buy like a bunch of like on a DVD set. I have so much fun with them and I have fun with them because I don't have to spend time reading all of them. You know, I don't yeah. have to sit down with it and like, oh, shit, I'm really I'm reading this junky story over like weeks like it, it becomes it takes you fucking, weeks to finish a Stephen King book. It takes to, you weeks to finish the Langoliers. <laughs> Actually, that book was long. Some All right. Yeah. Like, Langoliers is long as shit. Some are like 800, 900 pages. I think Stephen King doesn't know when to stop is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fucking, sometimes he does with the fucking under the dome. Wasn't that like 12, 1200 pages? I really, I really enjoyed reading under the dome. But I thought was, that was a really fun read. He was writing television at a and that, but, point. Well, then they turned it into television, yeah. and it's the mistake in reverse. The story <laughs> doesn't hold up to a television show. But this is why I think a lot of the great adaptations are based on short stories and uh, novellas, because realistically, that's a more accurate comparison. Right. Uh, you know, like Heart of Darkness becomes Apocalypse Now, or uh, all the Sherlock Holmes adaptations, or Breakfast at Tiffany's, or even the James Bond movies. They're based on... You know, stuff that's like 20 to like 100 pages. I, th I think like 90 pages is probably 
a hefty two and a half hour movie. Well, that's, which is that's why, what they had to do with uh, Heart, Heart of Atlantis, which is they just took the first story in that book, which was like it was broken into like three parts, I think. Right. They just took the first one and was like, all right, well, that's going to be Atlantis the movie. Atlantis is an underrated movie. It is. It, it's very good. It's sweet. And they, they made the exact right choice, which is if they had tried to do the whole fucking book, they would have never gotten out of that thing. And a lot of people's problem is like they don't like things being alighted over or things being changed in movies. People just don't like change. Yeah. And just grow the fuck up. Just be a man. Read the book. Watch the movie as two separate events. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. And I know I was flipping out on uh, In the Heart of the Sea. But if In the Heart of the Sea made all those changes that it made to the to the work and was good. All right. You I did your thing. I think it's you got to take what is the, the film trying to do with the original work? You know, like uh, the Starship Trooper example of, uh, you know, Verhoeven hated the book and he wanted to flip it on its head. You know, you're, you got to look at what the film is doing and if whether a whether or not its relation to the source material is that important and b you know, what is he when they change something? Why are they changing? To what effect are they changing it? Yeah. And uh, does it, you know, does it serve a different purpose? Is the message of the movie different from the message of the book? Or are they trying to tell the same story and they just they fucked it up? You know, like, I feel like I am legend. I hate that ending in the movie because the book nails it. And I feel like the movie is leading that way up until the third act, like we were saying. And then it, it I don't the think ball. the book ending would have been any good on film, though, because it's not any good in the other films. It's not any good in the Omega Man and it's not any good in Last Man on Earth. It's not a good movie ending. It's a good book ending because it's yeah. an intellectual ending. But you, need, you need a, you need a, a sensory ending and they the, never um, found it. For that the original ending of that is that uh, rather than he blows them all up, they, uh, they come in and it turns out they had just been trying to rescue the girl he was experimenting on. And they sort of like, yeah. And it's a shitty movie. ending. You mean the alternate ending to I am legend yeah. with the butterfly yeah. tattoo and he lets him go. It's a shitty ending. It's a bad ending too. It's it's slightly less bad, but it's it's bad for the same reasons. It's um you have a movie that was built on emotional experiences and then you end it on a um on, on a statement. Hmm. You know? I don't think movies should end with with thematic declarations like that. It becomes didactic too. Yeah. Like book, and, I think books get away with being didactic more than films do when they're attempting the exact same story. Sure, because books are, uh, unless you're like a modernist, books are really um, an analytical thing. Yeah. And films are really an emotional thing, which I, a lot of people get pissed off when I say that because a lot of people into movies like to say that they're, you know, like purely logic-based beings. But no, a movie's more of an emotional experience and a book in general, as somebody who loves both, is in general more of an analytical experience. And that's just the way it is, because one is a sensory operation and the other is an intellectual operation. With a book, you have to you have to convert images into uh, things that evoke those images. And then in a movie, you don't. But you have to convert emotions into things that evoke those emotions. So you uh, you're left with this sort of situation where you um, you need to stay true to what works and what goes like, for example, um, with I Am Legend, with the Omega Man, with uh, Last Man on Earth, which are all three pretty, really solid movies up to a point. In each case, it's like the medium shifts in the last act and it starts to tell you how you should feel about it. And that's never a good road for a movie to go down. 
And it's an easier road for a book because you're being told the whole time how to feel about something. I think an interesting question on the note of, you know, emotion versus analytics is when we talk about the idea of, of unadaptable novels, when uh, they say, oh, you know, you can't really film that. It's unfilmable. Which is always bullshit for the record. Everything's exactly. adaptable. Like, uh, you know, the fact that Cronenberg managed to turn Naked Bunch into a, into a movie that for the most part works is, you know, just shows that you just you have to move things around. You can't achieve Naked Lunch in a film medium unless you're actually, you know, just straight doing an underground avant-garde film that's just flashing images and vignettes. Well, you shouldn't try to yeah, and create should, yeah. Naked Lunch as a movie because you don't need to. It already exists as a book. Exactly. And what he, you know, he instead takes it and does uh, something pretty unique with it and tells a, a very different story. He weaves in ideas of of the book or passages, but... It's ultimately its own its own thing, and that's what you got to do. But even you know a more direct ver- uh, example, a more direct example like uh, "As I Lay Dying" and the, the James Franco one. I mean, that story is a pretty damn filmable story. You just can't do what Faulkner is doing with with language in film. Right. I, I did a, just, a whole interview with yeah. the writer about this, which if you haven't read it, um, goes very in depth into this topic. Yeah, Matt Rager. Good interview on the uh, Smug yeah. Film site. Or, um, but, sorry, you going to... Oh, no, I was just going to, you know, say, like, or, like, Watchmen. Everyone said you couldn't adapt Watchmen. Who would but, say you could? It's a well, fucking series of storyboards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Gilliam, I think, was saying, like, he, he would need, like, an entire TV. Also, Watchmen's not a book. No, it's a comic um, book. And this is a distinction. I was just thinking... The, the comic people book people would be pissed off about me saying this, but it's not me saying it's any lesser than a book... No more than saying a movie isn't a book is saying a movie is any lesser, but it's not. It's it's yeah. a visual story being told. It's not a uh, you you have sort of writing in in two different general ways. I feel like you have writing that's writing where you're you're using your medium to the best of your abilities and you're telling a story that's um, being told in a way that it being told and not shown is enhancing it. Yes. You know, for example, that's Faulkner and that's um, Hemingway because his his descriptions made you feel places and things and food and things in a way that even just seeing it wouldn't make you do it. Or, um, you know, Melville or, you know, fucking any of them. And then you have writing that's blueprinting. And to that, I, w- I would point to um, obvious examples of the fucking uh, Da Vinci Code, which is like not a book. That's like a screenplay that uh, that's written in book format. Or um, even I would say everything Philip K. Dick ever wrote, and this is the reason almost every Philip K. Dick adaptation is better than every Philip K. Dick story, is because he was writing these fantastic ideas and these wonderful settings and these kind of interesting sketches for characters, but it was not being told in a way that being told was enhancing it at all. Mm. Which is why I really don't like his writing. It's very muddy. And it's hard to follow, and it, it's sort of, um, it, it feels like it's straining against having to be written. So you take something like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and there's so much potential in it, but it's, I mean, it's pearls, and you have to crack open the oyster to get to it. And when you do that, and you pull the scum away, and you clean it off, and you get rid of all the other shit, you're left with Blade Runner. So this whole idea of books always being better than movies hinges on the idea of books being a superior medium medium for every story, which is transparently fucking bullshit. 
And if anybody felt that way, people would read more and watch fewer movies. Yeah, it's a, it's an intellectual thing where it's like they they feel like they have to uh, defend books. It's like, all right, well, we all know books are better than movies. Yeah, and it's always people who read a book every four yeah, months. Exactly. It's like, what what do you and ingest the, more? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they or they or they read Harry Potter over and over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, certainly some are. There's no way to do Anna Karenina that's not going to be shittier than Anna Karenina because that story is told as well as it's ever going to be told. But any of the people who are giving you the the book is always better thing either don't know books very well or don't know movies very well. It's also a thing too where it's like the uh, oh the band sold out kind of thing where it's like when you have a connection yeah, when you have a yeah. deep connection to a book it's like you're listening to a band that only a couple people are listening to and you're like you which this- i'll admit i fall victim to it sometimes with some sure. books like yeah. even me I'll, I'll be watching something that i read and i'll be like nah this was better before yeah but it's like becoming a movie is like the book's version of like becoming corporate or becoming yeah. commercial and i, I also you, you form like an intimate connection with the book, which is what a lot of people always talk about is because you're one on one with the words and it's just you and the words. It's not a communal experience. It's it's takes a long time to read a book uh, unless you can blow through them. Like most of the time you're spending, you know, a week at least with a book. And, uh, you know, so you form this connection and then it feels like it's being turned out for the mass media, for everybody to just sit in a the theater and be done with it in 90 minutes. And it, it I think people feel a little violated by that when it's it's not really their place to feel that way, but that's how you, you form that connection regardless. And so you feel like, you know, I was there first. Yeah, which is, it comes back to a common theme on this show, which is that being a fan of something isn't something you should ever be proud of. <laughs> it's, it's not something that should define you. <laughs> that's stupid. I also feel like I hear this a whole lot less now that I'm like not in high school. Anymore. Yeah. I feel like... <laughs> When I was in high school, people would say, oh, well, the book's always better. And that, yeah, I have not had that conversation in years. It, it also speaks to an era of filmmaking that um, for a while there, as a rule, this actually was the case. And it was something about the way books were being written and movies were being made. Um, in the, when in the Hayes Code came in and you had in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, a lot of movies that were based on these really piercing, great um hard-hitting novels because a lot of novels being written at that time were very it was a great period for novels and then they would get turned into movies and they would have to cut out all of the sexual tension all the cursing all the violence all the this all of that i mean how many books from the 50s were turned into movies where what they had to do was make the main character straight you know <laughs> like and, and in that time taking a contemporary novel that people had read and turning it into a movie for reasons that were beyond the filmmaker's control, the book usually probably was better. There's like oh. a clear point in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof where you can tell where Tennessee Williams stops and Hollywood begins. Yeah, or Suddenly Last Summer, which is a really good movie, but you know it's nowhere near the play because you just can't do that in a movie at that time. But we haven't lived in that era. I mean, we've never lived in that era. Right. So it's, you know, it's stupid. It's stupid to still hold to that. By the way, we, we've... Totally forgot Jaws and all of this. And yeah, I, I agree with him. Jaws the novel is an absolute piece of shit. <laughs> uh, and the movie's, you know, in my top five. The novel has this whole bit where Hooper is cheating on Brody's... Brody's wife is cheating on him with Hooper. And um, the death of Quint is patterned after the death of Ahab, which really doesn't work. 
you know, he gets his foot caught on a line and thrown into the water. And it's a movie. It's a story about something that bites people. So he needs to get bitten. Yeah. Or it doesn't work. And I think Hooper dies at the end, which is stupid. It's not a good book. Did either of you read it? No, I never read the, uh, the Jaws book. It ain't good. Yeah, the uh, the making of Jaws book is actually supposed to be really good, though, right? Because there was like a paperback uh, making of Jaws. Really? I don't know about this. You know about this? It's a, it's actually like a, uh, if you go online, it's one of those paperbacks that go for like 20 or $30 now because it's just Dang. really fucking good. There was a little paperback in the Jaws DVD, I remember. Oh, yeah. It was like 50 <laughs> or 60 pages. It was good. Yeah, it was pretty good. A lot of pictures. See, I, I'll, fun. I'll submit that the uh, the booklet that you get with a movie is better than the movie. Yes. Yeah. The booklet is always better. <laughs> the booklet's Anytime. always better than the movie. You got all those scenes listed, one to like 30. You Anytime can look we get at that. like a criterion and they yeah. like have those booklets that are like 80 pages. Yeah. That, those essays are so much better than those stupid fucking criterion movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to hear a guy talking about a movie. I don't want to hear, I don't want to watch the actual yeah. movie. Just throw away disc one, only watch disc two. It's got all the... Yeah, the disc two is so much better. Cause I just want to watch YouTube people comment <laughs> on having seen movies. Yeah. I yeah. just want to watch uh, vlogs about movies. Oh, it's the best. We need more vlogging. You know what we need? We need guys that try really, really hard to look like Keanu Reeves standing in front of a red background saying really, really safe things about movies. Over and over and we over We need again. more videos about what's wrong factually with science fiction movies. We really need to get into this more as a culture. Yeah. More movies <laughs> about technical accuracies. What Smugfilm needs to become is we need to start taking movie trailers and then talking over the entire thing, giving our opinions on why it's going to be awful. And also what we think is going to happen. Yes. Yes. Oh, by the way, this all reminds me. The Martian movie way better than the book. Oh, yeah. You oh, were yeah. saying that on a previous app. Pretty solid book, worth a read, but the movie clears a lot of fat out of it. Hmm. Makes it yeah. a lot leaner. But what did Neil deGrasse Tyson think? What happens to scientists when they touch the internet and it just <laughs> makes them horrible? I think fame is the worst thing that can happen to a scientist. Yeah. Because it real went to his head. You know, there used to be this platitude where like, oh, the real heroes are scientists. <laughs> but no, we definitely need to keep them isolated <laughs> in the labs, toiling in obscurity. Yeah. I think Carl Sagan happened and Stephen Hawking happened and everyone was like, well, why, why can't I be famous? Like I do, I do just as great work. You're forgetting Willie Lay, please. Willie Lay was my homeboy who started the whole thing. He was on the wonderful world of Disney in the fifties and he would give uh, these big, wonderful explanations of how rockets worked and stuff. And he was the first TV scientist. I'll Shout say, out to Willie Lay. I'll say that Mr. Wizard handled his fame perfectly well. Never got into any of this shit. Maybe it was just because Twitter wasn't around. Maybe Twitter's a problem to a certain extent. Apparently Bill Nye is a huge shit too, and I only found that out through Twitter, so yeah, could be Twitter. Bill Nye sucks now. Bill Nye's like crotchety. He's not fun. Yeah. He's he a, always really sucked angry. though. Well, Beekman's world was always better. Scientific American Frontiers was the fucking jam housing because he had Alan Alda. Mm. Wasn't a scientist, but he knew him some facts, and he was real, real good about them. All right, what's John, what's your number one obscure science show? Can we do the social sciences as well? Go for it. I'm going to do Kenneth Clark's Civilization, hmm. which is probably not obscure if you're an old British person, <laughs> but he oh. did this like uh, eight episode or so series in 1967 about uh, Western culture's rise out of the Dark Ages. And a lot of the 
the history is a little off now because it was the 60s, but the the general thrust of it is really wonderful. And he was a great narrator and it was uh, had some great footage of a lot of cathedrals that you never really get to see inside of and stuff. Hmm. It was a good one. Civilization I- with an S because he's British. <laughs> I liked uh, Science Court. You remember Science Court? No. It was a cartoon and uh, <laughs> it was one of those cartoons that like, I don't. I don't think it ever had like an official like. Oh, tune in at this time and it'll be on. It was the kind of thing that would like play on like ABC or whatever. Like if if like a baseball game was rained it out, was just syndicated. Yeah, yeah, it was like rainy day baseball game. They'll air an episode of Science Court and maybe a couple Twilight Zone kind of thing. But uh, Science Court, it was like Squiggle Vision, like Doctor Katz, and it was where like they would try scientific arguments. And it would always be like, end up being like a thing of like uh, fucking condensation or something. Like it would be like lawyers arguing about condensation. And I'm glad like, they're putting condensation on trial. <laughs> finally. Yeah. I've been waiting. And they would have to do some experiment. That's not real. <laughs> they would have to do some experiment to show that condensation works or whatever. It was a cute little show. I liked it. Science court. I like it. It sounds nice. Sounds yeah. like they probably had beakers and things. Yeah. yeah. Beaker heavy. Like it was also the, the thing you would watch in science class if, like, the teacher didn't want to teach. There was one, it was like a VHS series that went on forever in the early 90s. And I remember always taking the VHSs out from the special shelf in the video store. And they had green writing and white covers. And they were just, like, 30 minutes on a topic. Hmm. And I've been trying for um, probably 20 years to remember what they were called. They were great, though. Can't help you there. It was it was white white box arts with, like... Spiky green stuff, and then you know, like the science subject in the middle. I remember one was a tiger. It's coming at you. <laughs> so if you're listening and you know what it is, please. Yeah, inform. that would that would make me really happy. Yeah. All right, we're gonna close it out. Any final thoughts, people, before we split? No, just um, go go see Cloverfield and go send John Goodman good vibes. Good vibes to John Goodman. Any final thoughts there, John? I'm already googling what this science show was. All right, he's got. Um, He's got work to do. If you know, you let me know. I think it was white, but like, they had like little black lines across them. Hmm. You know, like, picture like a, like a sheet of paper that was lined. Kind of like that. <laughs> like college ruled. Yeah, like very straight scientific lines. All right. I feel like I know what you're talking about and like, I can't for the life of me. Yeah, they were everywhere. Everywhere. They, I feel like they probably had like a complete collection in like my element. Probably. Or the library, I used to probably have them. It was always the the library, you get to go to the library, and you're like, oh, hey, pick out a movie. And there's always just that, that row of, like, clearly boring, you know, science VHS tapes. And you're like, fuck that, I'm getting a fucking Aladdin for the 20th. I party. always loved them. You liked them, didn't you? I loved the, the, the science uh, shows. Wait, I think I might have got it. What is it? Oh my no, God. I didn't. Okay. Well, if you do know what it is, please let us know. Thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.